Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Prodigy, is one of the fathers of hardcore hip-hop. As a teenager in the early 90s, he and his partner Havoc found an East Coast answer to the emerging West Coast gangster sound. As Mob Deep, their tone was dark, eerie, and minimal. And their lyrics were cold and brutal. They didn't yell because they didn't need to. Their words spoke for themselves. Let's take a listen to Prodigy's opening verse from Shook Ones, Part 2. It is the epical single from their epical record, The Infamous. When Prodigy recorded it, he was barely out of his teens. I got you stuck off the realness. We be the infamous, you heard of us. Official Queensbridge murderers. The mark comes equipped for warfare. Beware of my crime family who got enough shots to share for all those who want to profile and pose. Rock you in your face, brain with your nose bone. You all alone in these streets, cousin. Every man for himself in his land. Prodigy spent his life struggling with sickle cell anemia. He was often in treatment or hospitalized, and in 2017, he was hospitalized for the last time. He died while in care. At the time, he was only 42 years old. And I'm replaying my interview with him, not because there is a, you know, posthumous box set or something coming out, but rather because late last year, the FDA approved a first-of-its-kind therapy to treat and almost eliminate symptoms of sickle cell disease. It's a monumental development, and when I read about it, I immediately thought about Prodigy. Had it been available to him five or ten years ago, he might still be alive today. When I talked with him in 2011, he had just written an autobiography, My Infamous Life. Let's get into our conversation, and By the way, our show back then was still called The Sound of Young America. Prodigy, welcome to The Sound of Young America. How are you? How you doing, man? Thank you. I'm doing good. I'm doing real good. One of the key issues in your book and in your life is that you have sickle cell anemia. Um, and I, I wonder if you could, before we start getting into the story of your life, just tell us what, I mean, for starters, w- what that is. Well, sickle cell anemia is an hereditary disease that's passed down from, you know, your mother and father. And basically it's like a rare blood disorder where your blood cells change from a round shape, you know, normal round blood cell shape to a sickle shape, and they start interlocking with each other, and it causes clotting, and it causes pain wherever that happens at. And it's like a domino effect. It just spreads out throughout your body, and um, the pain increases, and, uh, you know, it, pro- it gets progressively worse uh, if you don't take care of it right away. As soon as you feel the pain, you're supposed to get go to the hospital or, or take pain medication for it. 
What's the first time that you remember having a sickle cell attack? You know, I was real young, so I, I really didn't have a full understanding of what I was going through. Um, you know, I knew I had, I had something. I, you know, I wasn't like other kids because my parents they told me, you know, you got sickle cell, and you know, all I knew I was just in crazy pain, and that's all I knew. You know, it was just that pain, and I want to get better. I want to feel. I want to feel good. How did it affect your life, especially as a kid? It made me a real angry kid. Um, you know, I was angry at God. You know, and I used to sit there and pray to God, like, please take this pain away. But it's like, you know, it it it, it was nothing magical happening. Nothing. It was nothing there. Basically, I felt like uh, my prayers were were not being answered. You know, and it it, it made me real moody. I had like an attitude problem um, growing up as a young child. You grew up in uh, an interesting circumstance. You sort of grew up in in a bunch of different worlds all at once. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your uh, uh, grandmother and grandfather with whom you spent a lot of time and, and also about your mother and father. Yeah, my grandmother and my grandfather... They actually met at the Cotton Club in Harlem. Um, my grandmother was one of the first Cotton Club dancers. And my grandfather was a jazz musician. And so he played in the band at the Cotton Club. So, you know, that's how they met. And um, they got married and all that. And my, my grandmother actually started a business in, her, in, the, in the basement of her home in Jamaica, Queens. She started a dance school business. And my grandfather, you know, he he had a lot of jazz albums. He was in a big band with uh, Quincy Jones. He's actually a member of the the Jazz Hall of Fame. Yeah, he's in the Jazz Hall of Fame. And, you know, growing up, I just saw a lot of uh, famous people come into the house to see him. Like, you know, famous jazz musicians like Dizzy Gillespie and, you know, uh, uh, Frank Foster. You know, just different people like that. And, um, yeah, that's, I grew up around all of their show business. Your folks had, had both also been in show business and in the music industry themselves. Your uh, father sang with a doo-wop group called The Chanters, and, and your mother was a member of the uh, Phil Spector group, The Crystals, although she, she joined shortly after they um, had their biggest string of hits. Yeah, yeah, I mean... It it was uh it was definitely crazy you know what I mean to to see all the hear all the stories you know that that my mother used to tell me about you know touring with with the Supremes Diana Ross and the snakes in the industry like that 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 try to rob you you know for your credit and and your money and all that. She worked for Phil Spector, who's basically one of the all time kings of the questionable music industry guys. Yeah, exactly. So she's been through it, you know. She's been through doing a lot of work and getting a little for it. You know, and my father, you know, he was in that group, the Channers. They had a couple of lukewarm records, but uh, I think they never really took off like that, you know what I mean? But they still had the experience in the music industry. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, the whole the whole business was just always in my family, and I grew up around that. 
And um, I saw a lot. I learned a lot at an early age about show business, about how to put on a show, about how to, you know, the, um, how the behind the scenes works to put something like that together. Your dad was uh, a heroin addict. Um, and you write in the book about finding out about that. Um, how, how old were you? I had to be about maybe around seven, maybe around, yeah, around six, seven years old when I started noticing certain things about my father, um, you know, just little strange ways, you know, staying in the bathroom too long, going to a friend's house and telling me to wait in room, one room while they go in another room and just little strange things I started noticing. And then, um, you know, he finally came out and told me, you know, one day what he was what he was going through and what he was doing. So that was, you know, that was kind of crazy. That was kind of crazy to, to, to see all that and, and just uh, for him to tell me that. I was just like, wow, okay. Uh, yeah. Did you even understand it as a as a little kid? Yeah, I did. I did understand um, when he explained it to me, and you know, other family members explained it to me also what was going on. So uh, yeah, they they explained it to me in a way where I, I definitely understood what was happening. I want to play this uh, verse that you wrote about your dad in a song from one of your more recent solo albums. The song is called Veterans Memorial Part Two. Uh, let's hear a little bit of it. Strike me down if I'm lying. I miss my pops. All I got is lonely teardrops and memories of him teaching me to hurt people with my bare hands and how to shoot people. I remember me and him stuck a jewelry store. He did the sticking. I was in the getaway car. Pops came out with a big bag full of jewelry. We had a high-speed chase with Nassau County. I was eight years old. My pops was drama. They locked him up and sent me home. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to an interview I conducted with the late rapper Prodigy of Mob D. You know, I can wrap my head around the idea of your dad, you know, just being a a general low to mid-level criminal about town, you know, doing the occasional robbery and so forth. But I can't imagine the idea of him packing his kid in the passenger seat while he does it. Tell me about what was what was going on with your dad that he, he robbed this jewelry store and, you know, dropped the bag of jewelry in your lap in the passenger seat of the car. You know, my father, he was a drinker, too. He was a real heavy drinker. Like, his favorite drink was snaps. You know what I mean? Peppermint snaps, peach snaps. He loved all that. So I, the only way I could really make sense out of it is I think he might have been drunk when, that day when he did that. You know, because it just it just seemed like that's not normal. You know what I mean? Like, why would you do that? And he was, a, he was an intelligent individual. So... I think maybe he was drinking that day and um, he just took it a little overboard and forgot who he was with, you know what I mean? And, and didn't think about it until after he did it. Like, wow, I'm bugging right now. It seems like with with your, your sickle cell and you being small, um, especially as a kid, and having to be in different worlds at the same, at, at all these different times, your your mom, uh, 
lived in more than one place. You uh, went to a, a variety of different schools that you had to be tough from when you were very young. Um, Yeah, I mean, you know, growing up, I couldn't always get involved with the activities with all the other kids because if I overwork my body, it would trigger my pain, you know. So there were definitely times where, you know, growing up in Long Island, um, in Hempstead, where, uh, you know, people, like other kids wanted to challenge me, you know what I mean? They wanted to, you know, push my butt, see if they could push my buttons or whatever and see, you know, if I could fight or or what have you and things like that. Taking my kindness for weakness or taking my quietness and laid back style for weakness, you know. Um, yeah, and I've been dealing with that for basically all my life, you know what I mean? When I was young, all the way up to today. So I got I got into a few fights when I was a young kid, when I was like, you know, around that same age, six, seven years old. And, um, you know, my, my father was a, a karate sensei. He had his own karate school. And he taught me some, a few things about fighting. And uh, he would always push me, make me fight people. You know what I mean? He was like, oh, go, go fight that kid. You know, don't don't and take a knife with you too, just in case you know he don't let him don't let him beat you up. You don't stab him. Well, my father would tell me things like that, and that's what I did. You know what I mean? I would go outside and he would make me fight, and I would beat the kid up because I ain't trying to get beat up on my father. You know what I mean? I, my father, I was scared of my father. Yeah, that's how I was growing up. Um, the sicker cell, you know, it definitely made it where, you know, I had to prove myself a little bit. We'll be back in just a second. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Doubleday, publishers of Lessons in Chemistry. Be inspired. Read Lessons in Chemistry, the number one global bestseller with more than 6 million copies sold. Meet Elizabeth Zott, a 60s-era scientist who brings her smarts and unapologetic worldview to a TV cooking show that has the power to change lives. Lessons in Chemistry is available wherever books are sold from Doubleday. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from Apple Card. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card. It has no fees and gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we're listening back to my interview from 2011 with the late rapper Prodigy. 
Alongside Havoc, Prodigy founded Mob Deep. The duo essentially defined East Coast hardcore hip-hop. Prodigy suffered from sickle cell anemia his entire life. The condition led to his death in 2017. Just last month, the FDA approved a revolutionary new treatment for sickle cell disease that could improve the lives of the approximately 100,000 people who live with it in the United States today. Let's get back into my conversation with Prodigy. You started when you were about 11, 12 years old, getting into two things, and those were hip-hop and crime. Um, As you describe in the book, just kind of a real grab bag of various low to mid-level crimes. Tell me a little bit about where you were at at that point in your life when you were like 11, 12 years old, up until you were 13, 14 years old. When you were 14 years old, you bought your first car. What was going on with you in in that period of time? That period of time was like probably my most rebellious time. Um, You know, my my pops, he was... uh, he was on the run for a while, and so he wasn't around for the discipline, you know. And, you know, my mom, she tried her best, but I was, like, hanging out in the street, making new friends. I was, um, you know, I went from moving—I went from living in Long Island to moving to Queens and left Rack City. Um, so I was making new friends in different neighborhoods and learning new things, and— uh yeah, I started hanging out a lot, you know, with my new friends, and we started, you know, getting into a little more mischief than ever before. I started selling drugs when I moved to Queens, um, you know, because I, I noticed that everybody in that neighborhood out there, you know, they were doing that, and most of them were my friends, you know what I mean? So I wanted some of that, too. I wanted to get some of that easy money. And it had the nice clothes and the, and the jewelry that everybody uh, saw was having. And uh, so I started doing things like that. And I, I actually got caught, like, the second day of me selling some drugs, you know, being a crack dealer or whatever. The second day I was out there selling some drugs, I got caught by these, by these plainclothes detectives. And they, they actually let me go. They took the drugs from me. And they let me go because I looked at I was like— 12 years old around that age and I looked at like I was seven probably like eight like I looked at real little and young you know what I mean so they was like what the hell you he was like yo give me that get out of here go home yeah so you know that that kind of shook me up I was scared after that to, to uh to go out there and sell some drugs after that so I was like you know what I'm gonna just chill from that yeah but you know I was getting into other trouble things you know just started drinking uh, beer, started smoking weed, and uh, at an early age, you know what I mean, uh, 12, um, and, uh, you know, just hanging out real late, going to parties, you know, having sex, just just, just out there and, and getting in all kinds of trouble. Where I was, uh, you know, just manipulating things to my advantage, you know what I mean, Um you know, rob a few people or do whatever we had to do, you know, or whatever we thought was fun to do, you know, to get some money. That was my badass age. <laughs> How'd you get into MCing? Um, around that same time, you know, um, 
there was this there was this uh, producer from Queensbridge named Marley Maul, and he had put out this album called In Control. And um, it was a compilation album of different Queensbridge artists and artists from Queens and maybe a couple artists from Brooklyn. And um, one of the most popular songs on that album were, was uh, a song called The Symphony. So when I heard that, that was like the first song that really made me stop everything. Like, whoa, this song is, this song is like incredible right here. Like the lyrics that they were saying and the beat, it made me look at rap different. Like, hold up, this is something really that I really want to do with myself. Like, I want to do that too. You know, I wanted that. You know, so I decided to chase after that. Now, you started uh, sort of working towards a career as a professional musician when you were still a, a, like a relatively young teenager, in part because you had these family members who had some connection in the music industry. And so they knew what the deal was. They knew how someone becomes a recording artist. And uh, the first song that you ever uh, got that was uh, that you ever recorded that was released was when you were like 15 or 16 years old. And I, I want to play a little bit of it. Um, it was on the Boys in the Hood soundtrack uh, on a song by an R&B group called High Five. It's called Too Young. Time passes, I flow with the swiftness, G. Showing you all that I whip this continuous flavor. You don't wanna savor. And those without no clout will have to pay for this dope You ask who wrote this, the white fellow Beyonce, and I do quote this. That was a very place we eliminate. Create the great, then I wait as I meditate. For those who can't keep up with the dope rhyme, huh? I waste no time, but then they won't come to return the life of some. So for now, I guess we're just too young. When do you feel like, as a teenager, or did you feel all along like you became you as an MC? You got past that point of wanting to be Cool G Rap or wanting to be Craig G and started projecting your own real self onto, onto, onto your uh, songs. Um, I had to be... Right after that, that Boys in the Hood soundtrack came out. I was uh I went to go visit my father while he was on the run in California for another crime he had committed. And uh while we were out there, Boys in the Hood actually was, was released into the theaters and it came out. So we went to to see it on the on the um I think it might have been the premiere night. And we in the movie theater watching it, and I had no idea about movie soundtracks. I didn't know how it works. I didn't know they was gonna play it in the movie or, or none of that. So while we sitting there watching the movie, the song comes on, and me and my pops just jump up like, "Yo, we got a song in the movie, a song in the movie." You know what I'm saying? Like, we were real excited about that and hype. Like, that felt good, and it felt like I accomplished something. Like. And I really got to see the results of trying. You know what I mean? When you try hard enough to get at something, you know, it feels good when you see some results. You know what I mean? That makes you want to go further. You had some seriousness of purpose about you. It seems like one of the big turning points in your career is 
you had already hooked up with Havoc, who uh, who you knew from school and was a talented MC and became your partner in what became Mob Deep, originally called uh, Poetical Prophets. If I'm not if yeah. I'm not misremembering yeah, that, that's it. And um, you were you were trying to get you were trying to get a deal for this group, essentially by hanging out around record companies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, mainly Def Jam. <laughs> like hanging, when I say around, I mean like literally like down at the bottom of the stairs or whatever, or right outside the front door. Exactly, right outside. You had like a demo tape that that I guess you had on a Walkman. And tell me about the tell me about when you finally got someone to listen to it who, who got excited. Yeah, so what we used to do is we, you know, we made this 50-song demo tape when me and Havoc first met. We went ahead and made a demo tape, and um, that's good because every A and R is going to want to know that uh, a new artist can record forty nine or more songs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we made all these songs. It's crazy when me and Harry made songs. We just make a lot of songs for some reason. Ever since the beginning, you know, when we first met. So anyway, we had this fifty song demo, and our next step was, all right, how are we going to get it to be heard? So we looked at the back of the albums. And it had the address to all the labels. So we was like, all right, which one we going to pick? So we picked Def Jam to go to first because that was like the best thing popping at the time. So we took the address down and we cut out of school, hopped on the train, and went down to Def Jam. So now we standing outside because, you know, they're not letting us in, of course. So we standing outside waiting for artists to come out. You know what I mean? Waiting for whoever walks out this door. We just gonna stop them. I'm like, yo, could you please give our music a listen real quick? You know what I mean? We we rappers, we got some music. We trying to get signed to Def Jam. So we did that for a while, and a lot of people was just like, oh, I ain't got time for that, shorty. Uh, you know, they walked away. Some people just looked at us and ignored us and kept walking. Um, but then it's uh, one of these rappers that was uh, affiliated with Def Jam at that time was a rapper by the name of Q-Tip. And he was from a group called the Tri-Core Quest. So Q-Tip actually stopped. And he was like, all right, I'll give y'all a listen. He put the headphones on, and he listened to the music. He actually listened to a couple of songs out there. And then he took it off, and he was like, you know what? I like you guys. He's like, where y'all from? I said, we're from Queens. So he was from Queens, too. So he was like, all right, look, I'm going to bring y'all inside the office. I'm going to introduce y'all to some people. And, you know, I'm going to try to help y'all. So that was a major turning point for us. You know, we, we now we were inside. We had a connection, an uh, insider, you know what I mean? And, we, and he brought us and made us insiders now. Like, that's how we felt. When I was reading that part of the book, I was imagining Q-Tip, like this is the early 1990s. I was imagining Q-Tip as, as tribe dressed in 1991 or 1992 in like uh, African print baggy cotton pants and a dashiki yeah. and all that kind of thing and you i was imagining from i was imagining my image of you maybe from like the shook ones video which came a couple years later um but a little skinny kid in um in you know in the street fashion of that time which was more about looking <laughs> grimy than anything else and i was imagining the two of you going up there and what an unlikely pair you were yeah i mean you know, our, st- our style wasn't too 
different at that time because at that time, you know, like our name was Poetical Prophets. You know what I mean? So, uh, you know, that's that's like was the little phase that we were going through. You know, at that time, you had uh, this rap group called the X Clan. You had this rap group, you know, the Trial Court Quest. So a lot of it was like uh, real conscious rap about you know the black culture and 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 uh, you know being aware of of your culture and all that. So people were, were rocking you, African medallions and different. Were you stuff. rhyming about that kind of stuff? Now we weren't actually rhyming about that stuff. But that was like the style at that time. Like we were rocking that. We had African medallions. You know what I mean? Sometimes that was the trend at that time. That was the most popular trend was the African medallions and like, uh, you know, certain um, shirts and like African canes. Like a lot of people had that back in the days. So, you know, we wasn't too far from what Q-Tip was doing. You know what I mean? But we were definitely different. We weren't... uh, we weren't that style, really. You know what I mean? We would just, you know, we would just throw on some of the the trendy stuff at the time, maybe. You know what I mean? But that wasn't really our style, really. What we what we were about and what we represented in life and what, our actions in life didn't really match that. You know what I mean? We'll have more with the late prodigy when we come back from a break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. From the Twisted Minds, that brought you The Adventure Zone, Balance and Amnesty and Graduation and Ethersea and Steeplechase and Space and all the other ones. The McElroy brothers and dad are proud to reveal a bold vision for the future of actual play podcasting. It's, um... It's called The Adventure Zone versus Dracula? Yeah, we're gonna kill Dracula's ass. Ah! We're gonna, well, we're gonna attempt... We haven't recorded all of it yet. We will attempt to kill Dracula's ah! ass. The Adventure Zone versus Dracula. Yes, a season I will be running uh, using the D&D 5th edition uh, rule set. And there's two episodes out for you to listen to right now. We hope you will join us. Same bat time, same bat channel. For and bats. I see what you did there. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. You're listening to an interview I conducted with the late rapper Prodigy of Mob Deep. You signed a record deal as a teenager and put out an album um, that flopped. Um, it didn't flop colossally, but it was not a success, and you got dropped um, not that long after it came out. Um, you know, you you had some minor regional hits and and so on, but you were essentially back at zero. And I wondered, as I was reading you, reading your book, whether you thought about whether you thought about doing something else with your life, or whether it was always the plan that it was going to be you and Havoc and Mob Deep and the music industry that was going to be your future. Yeah, when we when we um, 
put out our first album, and then we had got dropped because it didn't do good. Uh, it was like devastating to us. We were like, no, no, this can't be happening. We were like, why did this happen? And we really had to recalibrate ourselves and really pull ourselves back down to earth um, and figure out why that just happened to us. And once we figured it out, you know, it was like, okay, this is how you fix it. You know what I mean? This is what we did wrong, and this is how you fix it. So that's what we did. We just got immediately got to work on fixing it because we knew this is what we wanted to do with our life. You know, this is the music that we love and that we live, and we ain't want nothing else. It was this or nothing. Like, that was our attitude at that time. It was this or nothing. We don't want nothing else. So we had to fix the problem. You ended up making this record called The Infamous. And and we heard earlier Shook One's part two. But let's hear a, another one of the most noteworthy tracks from that album, Survival of the Fittest. There's a war going on outside no man is safe from. You could run, but you can't hide forever from these streets that we done took. You walkin' with your head down, scared to look You shook, cause ain't no such things as halfway crooks They never around when the beef cooks in my part of town It's similar to Vietnam Now we all grown up and old and be on the cops control They better have a riot gear ready Trying to back me and get rock steady By the Mac 1 double, I touch you And leave you with not much to go home with My skin is thick, cause I'll be up in the mix of action If I'm not at home, puffin' live, relaxin' New York got it again depressed So I wear a slug proof underneath my guest God bless my soul, before I put my foot down And begin to stroll into the drama I built And all unfinished beef, you will soon be killed Put us together, it's like mixing vodka and milk I'm going out blasting, taking my enemies with me And if not, they scar, so they will never forget me Lord, forgive me, the Hennessy got me not knowing how to act I'm falling and I can't turn back Or maybe it's the words from my man Killer Black That I can't say, so what's left an untold fact Until my death, my goals will stay alive Survival of the fit, only the strong survive Yo, yo we live in this till the day that you die Survival of the fit, only the strong survive As I was revisiting the infamous I was thinking about how different it felt from other things that were out at the time. And by the time this record dropped, there were other people talking about street life on record, you know, especially West Coast, uh, you know, at the time, so-called gangster rappers. Mm -hmm. But there was something very different about the tone of what you guys were talking about. In that, if I listen to... Um, a, a West Coast gangster record from the early 1990s. It's sort of gleeful in a way, and it's like an adventure. It's like a movie that's exaggerated, like a like a black exploitation movie or something. And when I listen to your records from that time, they're dark and I guess I would say kind of sad. They feel they feel kind of sad to me. Um, yeah. I mean, it definitely had that element to it. Um, I think the reason the reason behind that was because uh, number one, you know, the environment that we were in, and then um, you know that we came up in where we, we spent our time at, you know, where where we live basically is um, 
you know, it's serious, man. There's a lot of crime, murder, drugs, poverty. It's crazy, you know. Poverty pushed people to do a lot of wild things. So, you know, coming from that that whole element right there, and uh, also Queensbridge, you know, that project's right there, you know, that's the biggest projects in America. And it's like, it's something real special about that that hood is, is that uh, a lot of trends, you know, came from that from that hood. We started a lot of trends. Like, we created a lot of uh, slang, uh, styles of dress, um, even the way our beats sound. You know what I mean? When we when we really got down to it and mastered our sound and our, and our production skills, um, our sound was like real sinister and dark and, and uh, evil sounding almost. Because of that, you know, the lyrics that go on top of it, we're going to write something that matches the sound of the beat. And it's only it's only natural that it's going to come out matching that sound, you know, and, and the whole lifestyle that we were living. And, um, and you know, of course, like the, the new slang that people really never heard and all the new styles and all the stuff that, you know, we were doing that was basically, like, uh, unique to that neighborhood. You know, that, that gave it the whole feel, like, this is something new right here. You know, they doing something new, like, you know, when Nas came out and, and then the Infamous dropped after that, it was just like, wow, was, these dudes is on, is on another level right here. I want to play a song that you recorded just a couple of years ago, um, sort of jumping forward in the timeline 10 years or so. Um, It's from one of your solo records, and it's called Mac-10 Handle. Okay. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about the place you were in when when you wrote this before we hear it. When I wrote that song, uh, I was just thinking of a concept where it was a revenge song, like somebody out for revenge, you know what I mean? It's payback time. Like James Brown had that song, The Big Payback. Like that's, that's what this song was like. You know, it was a payback record, a revenge record. It's definitely more crazy than it is karate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's hear my guest Prodigy and his song Mac-10 Handle. I sit alone in my dirty-ass room staring at candles, high on drugs. Yeah. All alone with my hand on the Mac-10 handle. Yeah, yeah. Scheming on you. myself in my four cornered room watching hard boy. I feel like I'm crazy. My brain on drugs. My bulletproof on run. Flats. Later tonight, I'ma look for cuz. Just ride through his hood. And when I see that chump, I'ma jump out the truck and dump my gun. You ain't never been through it. So you scared of that kind of ish? Hit me on the song and say, peep, pop a lot of ish. Too much of that gangster music. Nah, this reality rap. I really go through it. And Interrogation rooms, I don't crack again. I got none for you. Talk to my lawyer. It's, nowadays it's hard to kill. Be careful where you pull that trigger. They got you on film. They got eyes in the sky, staring at candles, high on drugs. So you were um, pulled over making an illegal U-turn uh, by uh, undercover police. Um, they searched your car, found an unlicensed pistol. And you ended up with a plea bargain that put you in prison for three years. Um, what kind of headspace were you in before you went into prison? I was in a bad, bad headspace. I was like, 
heading in a, in a, in a self-destructive direction, man. Um, I was drinking a lot, smoking a lot of weed, um, real uh, arrogant and cocky and just my priority wasn't wasn't together, wasn't in order. You know, I was just in a bad place, man, at that at that time. So me getting locked up was actually a blessing for me. I look at it as a blessing because it helped, you know, to uh for me to see the light. Once you get the you know, the the rug snatched from under you, you know, I got my career, my family snatched from me and and I was forced to just sit there in that box for three years and think about what I did and how selfish I was and all that, and how foolish I was. You know, it made me really see things and with new eyes, like, hold up, man. Why was I doing that? What the hell was I thinking about? Um, I put all this in jeopardy, put myself in jeopardy. Like, I got to change. Something got to give. And I can't ever come back in this place again. So, you know, that's what it was. Three years is a long time. Did did those changes take a long time to take root in you? No, actually, I started on that, like, immediately. You know, my plan was, you know, clean myself out mentally, physically, spiritually. You know, come out physically stronger, working out every day and get my body in shape. So I could be in like excellent condition and read a lot, get my mind sharp, you know, work out that brain muscle and um, just like repair my relationship with God and, you know, my, and, you know, cleanse my spirit a little bit because uh, I needed that because I was always like real back and forth about the whole, you know, religion and God and, you know, that come from me just dealing with that pain when I was young and, and just growing up, living that particular street lifestyle. Um, you know, it brought my relationship with God into question many times. So I wanted to repair that and fix that. And that's what I went in and did. I did all of that. You know, I wrote many albums and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, the most important part was just fixing my my mind, body, and my soul getting it together, like really getting it together where, you know, I could have a future and, and a successful future, you know what I mean? I want to play one last song. This is from the new EP that you just put out. Um, it's called Stronger. I, I, it's a beautiful song, a, a, a really pretty sample from, from one of my favorite Nina Simone songs. The moonlight shines on the New York skyline Midtown is lit up, the city is mine As I drive across Queens Bridge I see it clearly from my POV This is fact, not theory Yeah, that rapper got money But that rapper can't walk through this concrete jungle Cause he doing it wrong New York belongs to Don P You can have the rest of the world I'm good with these streets Skyscrapers and housing buildings I know about London, but I prefer Brooklyn I know about Marseille, but I prefer Queens And while you hire cops, I prefer my team I got a powerful army, it's no need for a gun You want hardcore rap, up with the right one This is maximum strength, there's no need for drugs You want reality rap, homie, you got the right one I'm strong enough to take the pain Tell me a little bit about, about writing this record. 
That record right there was like my way of showing people like that I could overcome any obstacle. I got a strong heart, strong-minded, strong-willed, that regardless of anything that happens, any obstacles in my way, I'm going to make it work. Prodigy, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. Yeah, thank you. I definitely appreciate you having me. Inflicted again and again. Prodigy from 2011, when our show was still called The Sound of Young America. His memoir, My Infamous Life, the autobiography of Mob Deep's Prodigy, is still in print and absolutely fascinating. As we mentioned before, the FDA just approved a treatment for sickle cell disease, a condition from which Prodigy suffered for his entire life. If you or someone you know is experiencing sickle cell, we'll have a link to some resources on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. I was actually up at my cabin in the Southern Sierras this week, and I watched Naked Gun Two and a Half, which is not a great movie. Uh, it's an all right movie, but it does have a great part where Leslie Nielsen says, I've been swimming in raw sewage. I love it. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Brianna Paz. She's on her way out, though. Thank you, Brianna, for all your hard work. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It was written and recorded by the Go Team. Our thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on Instagram. Uh, where we share interview highlights and pictures and behind-the-scenes looks and so forth. We are at Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. We are also on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs, who believes that plants and gardening are for everyone. With over 25 years of developing, trialing, and testing some of the most recognized flowering shrubs and evergreens on the market, Proven Winners Color Choice makes it easy to transform dull yards into vibrant, colorful landscapes. Ready to spruce up your yard this spring? Proven Winners Color Choice created the Gardening Simplified Landscape Guide to help you get started with tried and true elements of good planting design. Identify the roles you want new plants to play in your outdoor space, like ground covers, climbers, or attracting pollinators. Then browse garden plans and see which layouts and plants can bring your vision to life. Proven Winners Colored Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide. Learn more at provenwinnerscoloredchoice.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections.